All right, so this is our um, sixth and last class in this series on transforming or maturing the analytical mind. And um, it's been an interesting journey. We have some new material today and we'll also uh, somehow try to kind of tie it up. Um, but I think as you can see, what I've attempted to do is cover the whole Buddhist path, but uh, just with a certain lens on it which is um, uh, what we've been looking at for people with a particular kind of mind, or as I said at the beginning, this aspect of mind, because I don't think it's sort of a, a unique kind of mind. I think it's something that everyone has. Um, but I, as usual, we'll start with um, comments or questions or reflections about um, the suggested practices from last time, which included uh, gathering the mind in meditation, so that the body, feelings, intentions, thoughts are, are kind of aligned around one object or gathered around one object and what that feels like. And then also um, in daily life, whether we might um, have mindfulness while we're thinking. So bringing in mindfulness as a way to uh, actually assist our thinking in being a little bit more uh, well-directed. I'm curious if anyone has any thoughts on, on either of those or, or questions. Risa. Um, I, I found this very fruitful. I'm so thankful for your um, encouraging us in this direction. Um, in my daily life, I, you know, I've been practicing for a while. So when I find I have some ill will, um, I usually do a metta prayer right afterwards to realign my, my thinking. But with this encouragement of yours to nurture my mindfulness ahead of time, I have had the intention to carry metta with me, oh. much as I do with my sitting practice. I think of a little smile sitting on my shoulder that helps me. But uh, it's been huge. That's a nice image. Yeah, so huge in what way? Uh, my behavior mm -hmm. and my thought process. Less ill will. Of course, you know, we're restricted. <laughs> There's not as much, you know, so maybe that's it. Just not having someone. But I don't think so. I, I've noticed, I noticed the intention to bring warmth and kindness and care to things. Because it's an that's intention great. not carrying because of your because of the teaching you know focusing on learning something doing something a different way that's great and what yeah. i hear in that um in addition is maybe that um having that intention in advance was acting as that part of wise effort that is prevention so you could actually prevent having quite as much ill will by carrying um, this this meta with you sort of ahead of time instead of applying it say after the fact which is good too that's abandoning but preventing is a little bit more ahead of the curve <laughs> totally. makes a huge nice. difference I like that a lot thank you 
Welcome, Julie. Thank you. My apologies for being late. Couldn't find the Zoom connect the Zoom. Oh yeah, I keep I keep intending to resend that when I send the email, and then somehow I don't. So I'm glad some of you have managed to save it. <laughs> it was for six weeks. Any other comments from the practice last week, or anything at all, really? I was interested in what you just brought up as I came in that preventing is ahead of the curve from abandoning. <laughs> I didn't, um, I missed the language around certain things. I've been listening to the tapes. They're fantastic, but I hadn't heard of that abandoning term. So, Oh, I was referring to a couple of the, the, the four components of wise effort, which are, preventing, you've probably heard them, preventing the unskillful mind states before they come. But if they do come, then abandoning them and then cultivating wholesome mind states to come. And when they have come, maintaining them and keeping them going. And I was interested to learn recently, I, I didn't actually know this, that in the, um, somewhere in the teachings, I think it's in the commentaries, it points out that prevention and cultivation are harder than abandoning and maintaining. So there's a differentiation is that two of them are harder and two of them are a little easier. And when I thought about it, I thought that makes sense actually in that preventing and cultivating have to do with qualities that are not present. So you're either trying to prevent unwholesome states that haven't yet come, or you're trying to cultivate wholesome states that haven't yet come. So you're trying to do things now related to states that are not present. And so it actually makes them a little more challenging. And when you think about those four, the vast majority of practices are about abandoning. <laughs> you know, it's like how to deal with the hindrances, how to deal with, you know, all the things that are already in your mind. So some nuance to, uh, to wise effort. But it's a great, it's, it takes a change of state, which takes more energy in a way. The other two are continuing a certain flow that you're in. So you don't have to turn away from the thing, you know? Um, oh, so I well, see. I don't know. It's, I guess, I mean, they're actually saying that turning away is the easier one because there's something there to engage with. You know, it's already here. You've got the ill will, then you can deal with it. Oh. Um, at least that was my logic when I thought about it. Uh, I had never in my own practice really differentiated whether one was harder than the other or not. So that was, that's something that I'm now interested in in my practice is to see oh. whether I can come to that same conclusion in my own experience. What are those called, that set of things? The four right efforts. And did you cover those previously or you were just no, mentioning? No, they just came up in relationship to a comment that Risa made about her practice. It wasn't part of the teachings of this series. So you'll find it if you, if you look at teachings on the Eightfold Path. Thank you. Yeah. Stop, stop me if I get off topic on this question, but you're, um, that thing you just brought up about uh, uh, the four different types of wise effort. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is like perhaps a near enemy of that abandoning or not even abandoning. What was the first one? There was a preventing. two that were active and there were two that were not. Preventing is the first one. Say again? Preventing. Preventing. So how is that different than having like a pushing away and aversion? Um, it's possible like and grasping and you know that kind of yeah so um there's 
uh, in fact, this is and this is not off topic at all. This is related to our series very much, which is that um, wisdom, as we've learned, is a discerning factor of mind. It, you know, it it actually chooses between things, and it's supposed to. It's a discriminating factor or a discerning factor, and it's possible to do that from a very wholesome place. Wisdom is wholesome. Um, we could also uh, discriminate, there's a word already that has negative connotations, but discriminate or separate or divide from a place of aversion. Um, but we don't have to. It could be from wisdom. All of ethics is based on choosing the wholesome over the unwholesome. There's absolutely nothing wrong with making distinctions. You can't walk the path unless you can make distinctions like that. So we have to look in our own heart and know whether or not we're coming from wisdom or from aversion. Uh, there's a, a difference between how they feel. Yeah. Does that help? Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, intellectually, I sort of understand that, but like, I'm just thinking like, how would that look like in practice? So like, say some sort of unwholesome mind state uh, arises or like starts, maybe not quite arises, but like starts, starts to, to like come, yeah. the flavor of it sort of starts to arise. Yep. And yep. I don't know, let's just call it greed or something. So okay. greed like starts to bubble up a little bit. And then I say, I see you greed, but I choose generosity instead, or? You can do that. That's a yeah. movement called substitution. Uh, you can also just see the greed and hold it in mindfulness if your mindfulness is strong enough and it will arise and pass away right. without um, ever sticking to the mind. Uh, there are also ways in which wisdom can, so that's kind of mindfulness. It's a little bit... Um, basic level, and there's also ways in which wisdom can uh, cut the greed as it happens and um, actually eliminate that particular uh, karma from the greed. And the I would say that, yeah, I think the question I heard under that is how can you tell if you're uh, abandoning it in a way that's wholesome or if you're abandoning it through you know, pushing it away? Yeah. For me, the um, there's a feeling of continuity of, of a wholesome, um, peaceful attention so I see the greed, I'm not afraid of it, I'm not concerned about it, but I'm not gonna go for it. Sort of in the way that, you know, like when a small child comes, you don't feel threatened by a small child and you can sort of easily say, no, no, we're not doing that or something. Um, whereas if I'm uh, aversive to it, my, my attention will break or contract in some way. I have to, I have to add something or somehow, um, uh, mess with my otherwise mindful, peaceful state of mind. And when that greed comes, if I counter it with aversion, there's a feeling definitely of sort of a battle. And I've lost that smoothness, that smooth, peaceful quality. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Doesn't mean I can always do the way I want to. <laughs> Sometimes it does happen that there's aversion that comes, but then we try to just observe that. And as we see more and more, the mind gets better at not losing its balance even when un unwholesome states come, which they will. They're going to keep coming, so, yeah. Welcome, Roman. I saw you joined there. Okay, great. So, um, so last time we talked about calming and gathering the mind. Um, that uh, when we do that, we make investigation very clear and sharp, and we can then generate also all of the seven factors of awakening, which include both energizing factors and calming factors. And that uh, makes the mind into a very potent combination of, of settled and tranquil 
and therefore able to see very steadily, but also bright and energetic. It's an interesting combination. And uh, all seven of those can be strong at the same time. And that's actually what it needs to awaken. So today we're going to talk about wisdom, uh, which is, uh, and what this term means in the Buddhist system of training, and how it functions on the path to uh, assist the mind as it moves toward awakening. Um, wisdom includes both cognitive and heart qualities together. And it's informed by, in the end, by our deepest reference point. The deepest thing that we know to be true is the place from which our, our wisdom can come. And that will change over time as we keep practicing. So what is, you know, what is wisdom? It's such a um, daunting sometimes or lofty sounding term. I remember when I started practice, I was very worried about this term wisdom because I was sure that I didn't have any. And um, I kept being told, you know, you need wisdom in order to choose a teacher correctly. You need wisdom when you're deciding what practices to do. And I thought, well, that's not fair. I need a teacher and I need practices because I'm not wise, but I need wisdom to choose the right one. And so how am I going to pick the right one if I'm not wise? So I felt like kind of a catch-22 to me. But then I discovered that um, it's actually okay because even if you're not very wise, like I wasn't when I started practice, uh, you always have just enough wisdom to get to the next step. It doesn't mean that you have enough wisdom to get all the way to awakening, but you can get to the next step. And you, know, you can choose a teacher that's good enough for you, <laughs> that's wiser than you, basically. And then, or practice, and then you do that for a while and it does improve your wisdom to the point where you have then enough wisdom to get to the next step. <laughs> so it turns out it works in kind of a, a, a bootstrapping, uh, iterative kind of way. Uh, so don't worry if you feel like uh, when I say that word and you don't know what it is or you don't think you have quite enough of it, you have exactly enough to do the next thing. Don't worry. Um, but one thing about wisdom in Buddhism is that it's... Uh, it's different than we use the term in just common English parlance. So we think, at least I thought, that wisdom was something that's kind of fixed knowledge, like you have, you have a certain amount of wisdom and it's, you, could, you know, measure it and that's what you've got. Or you get to be a, a person of wisdom and you're just always sitting at some certain level of wisdom and that's how it is. Um, but actually, it's not quite like that in, in, uh, Buddhist understanding, because actually wisdom is a dynamic quality. Uh, like everything in Buddhism, we don't have fixed conceptual true things that exist, right? We have things that arise and pass. We have things that are conditionally true. And wisdom is the same way. Wisdom is also conditionally true. And so it is. that means it acts in the moment. It comes up in the moment in response to the conditions that are there. And it's sort of a living knowledge of what is going to take us toward suffering and what's going to take us away from suffering. Like what I mentioned in my answer to Scott earlier, we have some discernment about that's that way is good, that way be sharks, you know, and we have some ability to choose between those moment to moment. Um, so wisdom discerns which is the right direction. It also eventually dis discerns where is the freedom in this moment. You know, where is the actual cessation of suffering that's possible in this moment? So 
the heart of wisdom I've captured on this slide that I'm going to share. Um, okay, there we are, session six. So, wisdom, the wisdom of seeing arising and passing. This is a phrase that's used many, many, many times in the suttas. And so I, I didn't even put a reference because it's there's so many. It says, and what is the wealth of wisdom? Here, a noble disciple is wise. He or she possesses the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. So it's, it's a very stock phrase, but I highlighted, of course, that bold is not in the original, that's my addition. Um, I highlighted discerns arising and passing away. This is a key feature of wisdom, is to be able to understand that things come and go. And um, the last part, that it's noble and penetrative, which means it will see through, see through experience, um, and leads to the complete destruction of suffering. So these are code words that tell us that wisdom is actually sufficient. Wisdom is what takes us to awakening in the end. Uh, and so then we might get interested, oh, seeing arising and passing away, that sounds important because that is what generates wisdom and what's going to lead us to the end of suffering. So we'll get to that. Um, the verse, in fact, the first kind of major taste of awakening that we have is often characterized by their, when people go through it in the suttas, they also, they say another stock phrase. What they say is, all that is of the nature to arise is of the nature to pass away. That's like the insight that the first, that you, sort of your first introduction to deep wisdom. And you, it's, I love that phrase because it sounds like kind of nothing. You know, it's like all that's subject to arising is subject to passing away. Well, big deal. You know, why is that uh, like a huge understanding to have? Uh, but it is actually because it turns out that one quality of our mind is that we don't quite believe that. And, you know, we might believe it about most ordinary things. I mean, all sorts of things have arisen and passed, passed away for you today. I don't think anybody would be shocked by that. Everything you've eaten came and went into your mouth. Um, you've breathed a lot of times today. The sun changed outside, your clothes, you know, uh, all the going to the bathroom. You know, there was a lot of arising and passing away throughout today. Um, but we sort of have a sense that there are some things that don't. Uh, like maybe our awareness or our views about things or you know, even our body. I mean, we know that over time it changes, but no, we don't quite get that our, you know, our body is quite impermanent. And, you know, there's all kinds of things where we kind of know that they're impermanent, but we can tell that we don't really know that because when they do actually change suddenly, we're very upset about it right? We know that. And so, or, or shocked by it in some way. And so we didn't, we didn't quite know, or at least we hadn't sort of internalized that understanding. Um, we see it in children also. Uh, you can see that, you know, adults have more of this particular kind of wisdom. Uh, I live on a street with a lot of children and I hear them playing. And I remember one time last year, they were all playing with a balloon 
running up and down the street. It was, it was very joyful actually to, to listen to them playing with it. And inevitably after, you know, 10 minutes or so, I heard the pop <laughs> and then a child begins to wail <laughs> a moment later. And, you know, we know as adults that that's, a balloon is very likely to pop <laughs> if you're playing with it in the street. And we would probably not wail about that. Um, but for a child, that was a big deal. And so, um, you know, and of course the parents said, oh, you know, of course this happens, etc. And we need to do that with our mind too. Uh, we have maybe more serious popping of balloons like um, getting sick or, or somebody close to us gets sick or passes away. Um, and then we do wail and it's um, just a deeper version of the same thing. So we, we know that this is an important area for us to, to look at rising and passing away. And this is actually called, it's given one of the, the name Anicca, one of the three so-called universal characteristics of experience is that it changes uh, always in some way, eventually. And um, these three characteristics are also part of wisdom. So uh, understanding, I'll name the other two in a moment, understanding these three universal characteristics of experience that are outside of you know, our particular personal story, they're, they're true for everyone, are also an important part of wisdom and can lead us uh, away from suffering when we understand these three. So the first is anicca or impermanence or inconstancy. The second is a quality called uh, dukkha, which many of us have heard in relation to the so-called Four Noble Truths. Dukkha means it's not really, satis not really suffering, which is how it's often translated, although it can be that. Uh, usually it's um, maybe better to call it unsatisfactoriness or stress or struggle, kind of like struggle these days. How are we struggling with experience? And it's a quality of things that are impermanent that they don't bring, they can't bring lasting happiness. They are in some way going to be unsatisfying to us or not, not, not in the moment. In a given moment, we could perfectly well be enjoying something, but we couldn't rely on it as something that would last forever and it would bring us gratification forever. So there's this quality of dukkha little bit of strain in things. If you think that sounds depressing, like, wow, everything's bad, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite have that um, meaning, and we'll get to that. We'll understand later that there's a, an escape, if you will, from dukkha. We don't need to, simply by understanding that that's how things are, then we don't experience them as having this, this unsatisfying quality where we can be content with them just as they are. And then the, the third characteristic is one called anatta, and we won't have time to go into that in great detail, um, but I'll just name that it's the quality of not being personal. So things are um, not relating to, the experience we have does not relate to a permanent fixed self, uh, even though we subtly believe that it does. It does not at all mean that you don't have a self or that you know it's an illusion that you think you're a person in the world. I mean, maybe at some ultimate level it is, but your normal, there's nothing wrong with your normal experience. The problem is actually that we cling on to that, you know, and we think uh, I, I am this or I have to be like this. 
enormous amount of suffering or I can't be like this. You know, it would be terrible if I was characterized as such and such. All of these are ways that we bring suffering to our sense of self. Um, also the term self is the atta, the term atta, but doesn't really refer to the Western psychological self, which is why people get so upset in the West when you say not self, and they say, well, come on, how could that make any sense? You know, it feels, you know, and the Buddha didn't quite, he didn't say, no, it, it's all an illusion that you, that I think I'm Kim, that I'm somebody, you know, named Kim who has certain history and so forth. That's a, that's a perfectly fine way of perceiving, but if I'm attached to that, and I, if I kind of, believe certain elements of it, uh, I will suffer, right? I will suffer um, for that. And so there's a way also to, to release that sense so that it doesn't uh, bring us suffering and that that unfolds in deeper and deeper ways along the path. Um, okay. So these three characteristics, um, the Buddha often used, uh, and this is relating to our analytical mind, he often used logical deduction to help people understand them. So, for example, he would say, what do you think, monks, you know, to his followers, is the body permanent or impermanent? And so it's almost like a trick question. So, of course, they say, well, of course, it's impermanent, venerable sir. And then he would say, well, is what is impermanent happiness or suffering or is it unsatisfying or satisfying and they would say well Bonte it must be unsatisfying so then he would say aha and is uh, we didn't say aha I'm adding that in but that's the tone that I read in the suttas is that he says well is it fit to regard what is impermanent suffering and subject to change as this is mine this I am this is myself. Is it fitting to regard it that way? And they would have to say, no, venerable sir. Because the idea is if something is your permanent, true, ultimate self, um, probably it shouldn't be suffering. <laughs> and probably it shouldn't change if it's your permanent, real, true, ultimate, underlying, eternal self. To put a lot of adjectives on it. So, um, you know, and you may, this, I don't think this little catechism is going to be enough to convince us uh, to really have that liberating understanding of that, but he would do that to sort of lead people along logically. He did this a lot um, so that they would at least have an intellectual idea that they might question the permanence of their self and kind of without, um, without some idea of that, it's hard to, it may be hard to realize that in practice. So you start with the intellectual idea, or at least some openness. Hmm, maybe I'm going to question this, or at least be open to other possibilities. And then from there, you can do standard practice, satipatthana practice, anapanasati, the regular practices that the Buddha taught, and might, might have some insight into that. So this then, all of this, is called right view, um, understanding the Four Noble Truths of Suffering and the End of Suffering, how you get there, understanding the three characteristics. Um, yeah, so these are, I'm, I'm kind of talking around a whole set of wisdom qualities that I'm going to provide a list of later um, that kind of arise. Remember I said that as we go along, once we let go of the unskillful ways of thinking, then what start to emerge 
are these Dharma qualities. We've talked about clear comprehension. We've talked about investigation. We talked about the seven factors of awakening starting to emerge. So these are other qualities. Wisdom is one more of these qualities. Wisdom and right view, which are very similar, are, are qualities that come up. And when they start coming into blossoming, uh, the mind is getting to the point where it would be able to have liberating insight. Um, so this kind of wisdom rests on the precision of discernment. So that's kind of a head quality, if we could call it that. And it also rests on um, some of the nourishing qualities that we talked about several sessions ago that include uh, the calling that we have toward wanting to let go of suffering. You know, why are we practicing? And that's a good question to ask yourself, by the way, periodically. Why are you doing this? Um, but there's a heart quality in it of, I don't want to suffer, or, you know, I don't want other people to suffer, or I want to find peace or happiness or real ease in my life. Something, something in there it has an emotional quality to it. And it may go even much deeper than just emotion to uh, really kind of a calling of the heart. That's a heart quality. And I don't think the mind really awakens I don't think you can awaken just on the idea that you want to get somewhere or that, you know, you've thought through this catechism and you want to understand anatta. I think there has, there's got to be that really deep, intimate quality from the heart that says, yeah, this is, this is really a value for me. And so when those two combine, then I think we're getting to, to what, what is really wisdom and not just, you know, say intellectual wisdom. Yeah. Lest it sound too lofty, <laughs> all of this, um, I want to also consider, I have one more quote for you about another way that the Buddha talks about wisdom. Um, it's here. He doesn't really talk about wisdom as an abstract quality. He mostly talks about it as what is a wise person characterized by. And he says, a wise person is motivated to benefit oneself, others, and both self and others. That's it. That's what wisdom comes down to, is that you're motivated to benefit. And it's okay to benefit yourself as well as others. And so there's the compassion, and there's the sense of, you know, benefit yourself doesn't mean you should get the highest income possible. He means real benefit. You know, the benefit of uh, internal peace, of a clear mind, of ethics, of a wise heart, a loving heart. So that's real benefit. And if we want that for ourselves, that's really skillful. That's very wise actually to want that. And then we want the same for others. So wisdom naturally is something that is gonna, uh, we're gonna bring into the world, use it in, in very wise ways. Kim, before you go on, somehow because of the way my um, computer is set up, the pictures were over the side of that. So I found it really curious that it said a wise person is motivated to benefit oneself and others and both self and others. Is mm -hmm. that what you said? It says oneself, others, and both self and others. I see. That's why I couldn't see oneself. Three categories. There's actually one other sutta that, that has a fourth category and it adds the world onto that, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. So we, we want all kinds of benefit when we're wise <laughs> for, for everyone. 
Right. Okay, so um, so wisdom is also it's not just like kind of a neutral quality. Um, it it it's an active quality that interacts with things. Remember, I said it's a living understanding of what goes toward and away from suffering, living in this moment, not something fixed. And so Utejaniya, a wonderful Burmese teacher, says, even wisdom wants things, which I like because so much, so often we think, oh, desire is so bad and it's the cause of suffering. But that's not actually what the second noble truth says. So we know that even wisdom wants things. It wants to help the world. It wants to become even wiser. It wants awakening. It wants to preserve the teachings all kinds of things. And I think I would add to that, even wisdom can think. <laughs> so there are ways in which, you know, we don't ever lose the capacity to, here I am talking, I'm using linear language, I'm using my left brain to communicate in words. Um, and it's, that function of mind doesn't end. The Buddha talk, walked around talking to people, he gave catechisms to teach people, so, uh, but I don't think he ever came from discursive thought. The Buddha was done with that. So um, wisdom can do all those things also. So we can start to maybe replace our busy, agitated, self-focused mind that does all these things with a wiser, calmer way of being that nonetheless is able to use those same faculties. So we don't have to give that up, but we are going to have to give up the unskillful part of it. In the end, uh, the awakened mind doesn't have anything to do with the monkey mind. <laughs> Let's say it that way. Um, okay, so are there any quick questions? And otherwise, we'll meditate. Yeah, Arisa. Um, I think you heard me say I have a hard time with the word heart when we start talking about um, things. And you said that um, that wisdom emanates from a heartfelt, intimate quality. Um, and is there anything wrong with translating that into a deep insight experience instead of heartfelt? I, I mean, I know, I don't know. Yeah, I I don't think we need to um, we but, don't think we need to use the word heart. It's one more word. All of these words uh, have effects on the mind, and you're definitely encouraged to choose the ones that work. Um, there there are certain uh, kind of emotional associations with heart that sometimes that are actually uh, I would say not part of what I was pointing toward. Um, maybe we could use a different word. Uh, see how this fits of a wholeheartedness. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to, yeah, your face indicated that was a little better. I don't think we're going to get to freedom. Yeah, or holding experience. We're not going to get to freedom um, without bringing everything and without like letting go of everything. Comprehensive, holistic. Comprehensive, okay, that's good, yeah. Like holding it all together. Holding it all and um, no part of ourself left oh, out. Left out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, yes. I understood. I understand what is is meant. I believe. I just because I lead a, a meditation group, I want to be careful with words because it's it's confusing for people to hear that some mystical heart, you know. 
<laughs> like, no, it's something you can have and, and you've already had it in your experience. So anyway, that's, but it's okay for me to, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to be a nudge about the word heart, but I want to understand that I'm not missing something, mis misunderstanding something. Yeah, I would, there are different doorways for different people. I mean, remember that the Buddha says there are two, there are two uh, people that are close to, that are on the path, but prior to stream entry, prior to the first experience of awakening, one is the Dhamma follower, which is kind of the wisdom approach, and one is the faith follower. Faith is sufficient to get to stream entry, well, you have to have wisdom also. But the wisdom person needs faith also. And so there's got to be something warm, something um, soft. But isn't that it can get a little hard. It can get a little clever. Um, okay. It can get a little distant. So that those parts are balanced by uh, whatever you want to call it. Faith, trust. love. I, trust, I don't use faith either. Compassion. I use trust. <laughs> um, some of those, yeah, people don't like the word faith. So something like that, because uh, in the end, it's you, you're gonna you're gonna surrender everything. Yeah. And the intellectual mind's not gonna do that on its own. But that's part of the second half. <laughs> so um, let's go ahead and and meditate. So. So please find a, a sitting posture that you'll be able to stay with for a little while, allowing yourself to settle in, maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths, gathering the attention inward, closing the eyes, that's comfortable for you. Feeling into the sense of the body sitting. See it against the cushion or the chair, the legs or the feet against the floor, stable. Maybe on the exhale, softening the shoulders, the belly, any bracing in the legs, softening the eyes and the eye sockets and the face from, from looking at the screen. In this meditation, I'll be inviting you to experience the body. We'll be considering the four elements as bodily experiences. So beginning first by just feeling the body as a whole, bringing the attention, maybe imagining lowering your yourself down into your body, like 
getting into a hot tub, really allowing the mind to infuse down into the body to whatever degree it can right now. And just sensing the breath coming in and going out as a, a physical bodily experience. And we notice as we sit and breathe that there are aspects of the body that are solid. That's why we're sitting on the chair. There's a sense of solidity or hardness in the place where we're sitting, the contact of our feet or legs with the floor if our hands are resting on our legs, the uprightness of the spine, hardness of the teeth, it's part of the experience of the body is this hardness. This is called the experience of the earth element. It's not a particular substance, it's an experience. So just this experience of solidity. So tuning into that aspect of the body. Feeling that simple solidity. We know that there are a lot of solid things. There's the chair where we're sitting is also solid. And the table in front of you and all the things out in the room and the world around you are also earth element. There's really no difference between your bones and the table in terms of hardness and solidity. It's all just earth element resting in that understanding and experience. And in the body, we also have the experience of liquidity. So the saliva in your mouth, the fluid in your eyes, if you're sweating, the fluidity or water element of the body provides also some cohesion to the solid parts in the same way that as you walk on the beach, 
when the sand is dry, it doesn't really stick together. But as you get closer to the ocean, you go through a place where you can walk. It's because the sand is wet there. It's a little bit wet and it becomes then cohesive into something that feels more like the ground that you can walk on. And in the same way, the body's kind of held together from, by having water in it. We can sense into that liquidity in the sense of cohesion as well as the actual liquids of the body. I'm just resting with that. It's another dimension of our physical experience. We know that this water in our body, this experience of the water, is really no different from the water of the ocean, the water of your kitchen tap, the water of the rain. It's all just water, internal, external. It's all water element. And just resting in that non-differentiation. And another dimension of our physical experience is the temperature of the body. We feel warmth in some parts and maybe coolness in some parts. There's heat generated in the body, moving in the body. This is the experience of the fire element. So noticing the different temperatures in different parts of the body. And we know that this heat is just heat. It's not any different from the heat of a stove or sun or the hot tub. It's all just heat or coolness, internal fire element, external fire element, 
all just fire element. So resting in that sense of equivalence between the internal and the external heat. And the fourth element, the fourth dimension of bodily experience is that of motion. So we feel the movement of the breath. Maybe there's some movement in our gut. Flow of blood. Just a sense of movement or there's even just energy in the body that moves. This is the manifestation of the air element, the quality of motion. So feeling whatever in the body is, happens to be moving. It's an aspect of experience. Breath. Breath coming in and going out. It's clear that the internal air element is continuous with the external air element. We're surrounded by air, by moving air that comes in. It's briefly part of us, goes back out. Things around us move. Other beings move. The trees move in the wind. And it's all just motion internal air element, external air element, the same. And we feel how all these four qualities of the body, solidity, liquidity, heat, motion, are actually all part of motion. They shift around, flow, change. Body is quite dynamic. It's really exactly the same as the way things outside of us 
flow, change, transform. Everything in us is just a part of nature. There's no unchanging personal self in the body. And so we know that our happiness cannot rest on any of the elements. It's continually changing, flowing. It's actually quite restful to just sit breathing with nature. Okay, so gently coming back, a little taste of the three characteristics. So I thought um, we would have just a, a short period of a small group discussion. Um, you are very, you look quite meditative, all of you. So it would, it would be fine to actually kind of bring in your um, meditative mind. You don't need to feel like oh, I'm with these other people. Now I have to ramp up my usual chatty way of talking. It's fine to um, be kind of meditative in your interaction. And I thought um, we could consider a couple of questions. The first one being, in what ways does your meditation practice benefit both yourself and others. Remember this quality of wisdom is being of, we want to benefit ourselves and others and both. So how does your meditation practice benefit both yourself and others? 
And the second question, but uh, don't worry about it immediately because I'll type it. I'll type it in partway along, but just as a preview, I'm going to ask you, how does getting familiar with the changing nature of experience, like we just did, how does that support wisdom? And is there anything in your experience that doesn't change? Can you name anything that doesn't change? But we'll start with the first one. In what ways does your meditation practice benefit both yourself and others? So let me um, create these rooms. Okay, so I'll see you in a few minutes. Okay, so welcome back. I hope that was interesting. Um, are there any comments or um, things you'd like to share with the larger group. I'm especially interested if you found anything that doesn't change in your experience, but also, uh, also, you know, ways that you practice benefits, this has benefits and um, yeah, the wisdom of arising and passing. Jane was mid-word when we came back. Oh. <laughs> and so um, I was very interested in what she was saying. And so then, then there was that moment where it was gone. And uh, um, I'm not sure if she needs to feel, if she feels like she needs to finish, but it was a really interesting experience. <laughs> okay. Could you guys see the clock that was on there? Um, you could, I know it's, yeah, get oh, into the conversation. Actually, you gave us a message, but she was internally, to yeah. the, she didn't see the thing. But is there a clock okay. that counts the time? Yeah, like, I had 10 minute clock on there. It's the first time I've done it. Ah, um, because you didn't say the amount of time. And just as we left, I said, how long? And then we were gone. I'll have to look yeah, at that There clock. was a 10 minute clock. Great. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, it did did you want to say anything, Jane? You don't have to, but um, it was a nice invitation. Yeah, thanks. I was just finishing up on my thought on how I've lived here in Santa Cruz for 30 years, and even that perspective is changing. So as we incorporate more knowledge and, and wisdom and um, skill, everything does change, and I hope um my appreciation and perception of it gets deeper so that's a wonderful wish i i was on retreat once and i somebody was wearing a t-shirt that said impermanence makes everything possible i've always liked that I like that roman um i was kind of thinking of the question of is there anything that doesn't change um, 
I was kind of grappling with like the words to describe because it's not quite mental faculty because there certainly are moments that I experience without thought. But um, I think that that experience is always constant and that I'm always experiencing something even if it might not be in like this physical present moment, which is 90% of the time. But like, even when I'm lost in thought, as it were, that it's still an experience. And like, even when like I'm going to sleep or, or I'm dreaming, there seems to be experience of some kind. And I'm a little bit hesitant to like use the word awareness, although it seems like it might fit as well. It's just that awareness tends to lend itself towards like clarity, which is not necessarily what I would say is constant. Um, yeah, so this is, um, this is worth investigating. Uh, the, the notion that, uh, that experience is always present. Experience is always known by consciousness, of course, um, points a little bit toward what you said. And so all, and all of the six sense doors, in this case, we would have six sense doors. So even the mind, like you, you mentioned dreaming, for example, that's also an experience, of course, that can be known. So this is um, kind of the final frontier in what we think is the self. And it's, um, it's worth investigating uh, that quite carefully. So you bring up a good point. There's no argument against that, um, but keep meditating. <laughs> I do know someone who um, was asked that question and they said ignorance. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> uh, it does seem like that, doesn't it? <laughs> Any other comments? Yeah, Julie. Was your hand up? Oh, you were just... I didn't have it up, but I do actually have a, I have this um, deep sense of um, something that's ever living. And um, it might be called the soul or the, you know, the, the drop of the ocean or the ocean. And that is a real living, uh, powerful force for me. Um, something I have a lot of uh, certainty about. Mm. Um, so that's what I mentioned when, is there anything that doesn't change? Yeah, this, this sense of an overarching, so you would say that's a non-personal kind of awareness. Like an absolute unitive. Okay, yeah. So this is um, this is the Atta, <laughs> um, and it's it's fine. That is an experience that we have an intuitive sense of, um, and and it's also worth investigating. It is an experience, kind of like what Roman pointed to. We can have an experience of that or a sense of that. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, that's something that the human mind is capable of touching into. Yeah, I've experienced it in a fully embodied way. What one call enlightenment, and in, in not necessarily in the Buddhist terminology. And so, uh, 
Yeah, maybe a sense of oneness. Sometimes people call that or uh, non-separation of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are quite profound experiences. Yeah. I failed to get the battery and it's going to die. So I'm going to take a moment to just go get my um, plug. Okay. I apologize. Okay, no problem. Okay, so I wanted to um, wanted to then just say a few words about um, you know what is pointed to. First of all, uh, I'm going to share the screen again to show. Here it is. Um, this cluster of wisdom-related qualities that we've been pointing toward. As I say, you know, certain Dharma qualities start to emerge. Um, I've listed here a bunch of them that you'll find all over the, the suttas. And they point, they're, they're, they're not the same, they're not identical, but they kind of point in the same direction. So we've talked about clear comprehension, we've talked about investigation of states, uh, wisdom, I would add to that right view, uh, non-delusion, which is listed here as amoha. And there's also um, wisdom is divided into a faculty and a power. Um, and then there's also this road to power of investigation. So there's a certain um, sharpening of investigation uh, that happens in, in concentration. So all of these qualities are these um, parts of the mind that kind of emerge out of our analytical faculty or our ability to discern. But once you've stripped away the self-referencing and the um, unskillful components of them, these are some of the beautiful qualities of mind that are related to wisdom. It's nice to see them all gathered at once. Um, if you're wanting to capture them, you can always take a photo of the screen um, or take a screenshot on your computer. Um, and so wisdom, these qualities, and wisdom in particular, the panya, is said to be uh, what makes the cut, if you will. There's an image of wisdom as a knife, and it's not meant to be a violent image, but it's the thing that cuts through, that's why it's called penetrating, that allows the mind to, to see something that is beyond all of conditioned experience. Uh, another image for wisdom is the light. Light and the knife are kind of the two yeah. ways that we're that we can get our minds around what this is. Um, so there's an idea that, given that conditioned experience, that is everything that arises and passes, everything that's dependent on changing conditions and shifting conditions, since all of that is characterized in some way by dukkha, by unsatisfactoriness, uh, the Buddha asked the very reasonable question: Well what is there that is that is not that? You know, where would be some kind of peace or ease or uh, freedom that is um, not dependent on conditions? And so, you know, in that sort of technical language, what, what that means practically is, how could I experience that all the time? <laughs> you know, it's that's not dependent on my life being a certain way, on my partner being a certain way, on the world being a certain way, is there a happiness or a peace that is actually possible even with everything as it is? That was what he was aiming for. 
and it's almost so mundane we 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 miss it you know it's like oh i was looking looking for you know some heaven realm or something beyond all of this that's going to open into a new dimension but what he really says is no what what can you find that is there regardless of all this other stuff is there such a thing suddenly we think i don't know what what would that be because i care so much about how things are and i'm always trying to arrange things to be better and uh, and he's saying no there's a way that you could come to uh, perfect peace with this <laughs> and so that is the goal that's what's that's what's called nibbana and this is from the um a book called The Island, which I highly recommend. It's a, a compilation of all the texts about Nibbana and some commentary to unite them together. Um, and it's, uh, it says right at the beginning of the book, Nibbana is a word that is used to describe an experience when the heart is free of all obscurations and is utterly in accord with nature, of Dhamma, it experiences perfect peace, joy, and contentment. So that's quite profound, actually, um, and and it's possible. It's um, something that's pointed toward. Now, people will have different ways of of saying it. That particular sentence is just one. It's not from the suttas. It's by the authors of that text. Um, but. Uh, the Theravadan tradition, at least, often describes Nibbana by what it's not. So it has a, a, an approach mm -hmm. where it says it's not greed, it's not hatred, it's mm -hmm. not delusion. Anything that doesn't have those three uh, could partake of this kind of peace. Um, and so we're, we're left sometimes with not so much to hold on to. You know, I was looking for the bliss. I was looking for some clear sense of what it is. And... I think the Buddha was pretty smart, actually, or at least in the early teachings. He doesn't say much because we can limit ourselves. You know, we know how our analytical mind works. It fixates onto something and says, that's it. That's what I want. And that's exactly what will prevent um, opening to this kind of uh, mode of being. So I think it's uh, intelligent not to give us too much, but we don't want to lose the goal. We don't want to lose the fact that yes, there is an end to all of this work. It's not an endless path. We're not, we don't need to go for tens of hundreds of thousands of lifetimes to save all beings. That's a later idea. Um, the early tradition says it's quite accessible, um, but you, it, we do need to let go. So that's what the path is about. It's about letting go of our thoughts, our emotions, the things that are uh, binding us to things that are conditioned. And then, you know, we get the conditioned realm back, but we've seen something else. And having seen something else, having cut through once, uh, the mind can work from that place, if you will. And so I guess my final uh, description of how we might think of this process is, you know, and again, it's just one more description, but it's a useful one in light of the work we've done over the last six weeks, is that we have, uh, a certain understanding that is our deepest understanding at this moment, whatever that is. And we, if to the degree that we try to work from that place, we try to live our life from that place, whatever glimpse we've had, that is what I said at the beginning, is just enough wisdom to get us to 
another understanding of some kind. Jane mentioned quite beautifully that over time she sees that things keep changing, keep unfolding, keep opening in her understanding. She even living in the same place for 30 years. We can sit on the same cushion for 30 years and we'll keep opening. And if each time we have some new understanding, if we start to live from that place, start to incorporate that into our mind and body and being, uh, that'll be enough to go a little while longer and then something else will open. Um, and there comes a point where we have a very deep reference point and that helps a lot. Um, helps us and it helps others. Benefits self and others. We talked about that also. So we increase our confidence also each time we have some new understanding, some deeper view of things. Um, we get a little bit more confidence that the path is working, is going in a good direction. That doesn't, doesn't mean that we continually is bliss or that it gets better and better and better each moment, literally. It's a little bit of a zigzag path, but the trend is up or down or I don't know, it's not in any direction really. But um, so don't, don't expect like sort of, you know, more happiness each day from now until the end, but it's a, uh, there's the trend toward happiness, peace, ease, seeing more clearly. And it's beautiful to see that in people who practice for a long time and each in a unique way. We all have a unique set of stuff that we need to let go of, combination of stuff. And as we do that, we evolve toward the same freedom, but it looks a little different. So I hope that you'll uh, be inspired and you're already inspired in some way to come to a class like this but to you know to keep opening to use be willing to use all parts of your being your your cognitive facilities your emotional your experiential your relational uh, to keep looking keep looking uh, where's the skillful where is it going towards suffering where is it going away from suffering and Keep somehow navigating down that path, and each time you see something new, manifest that, make it real, and that'll get you to the next one. So I'll stop there and just uh, invite um, comments, questions, whatever sticks out for you, and whatever would help you feel complete. Val. Oh, th this is just, I just wanted to say, uh, thank, uh, express gratitude. And I just wanted to mention that we can all express gratitude through Donna, if we so, so choose. And uh, we can do that through ISC, I think, or how. Yes, on the ISC website, there's a donation page that will help you donate to Insight Santa Cruz for supporting and sponsoring this and also to the, for the teachings. I uh, really appreciate your clear articulation of ideas and thoughts. Um, it's, it's wonderful to hear things expressed in a way that make it so accessible. So I appreciate your, your clarity and articulation. Uh, Julie. I, I, um, want to express my appreciation also, but I wondered if you could read that quote one more time. 
I just needed to hear it in your voice again to something I need, wanted to absorb. The heart is the free of all obscurations. Yeah, so what I read was Nibbana is a word that is used to describe an experience. When the heart is free of all obscurations and is utterly in accord with nature, with Dhamma, it experiences perfect peace, joy, and contentment. Thank you. I just wanted to say that um, I deeply appreciate your transmission of the teachings in such a straightforward, kind, steady, loving way. I felt it was a real bestowal. Thank you for your skillfulness too, the way you managed the class. Um, it's just lovely, inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jane. Uh, this was a lovely experience, Kim. Thank you so much. Very much appreciated. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm glad all of you could join. I'll express my gratitude also. Um, this has turned out to be a pretty constant, nice set of people that we have together. And I feel like um, what all of you brought in your comments and questions um, was nourishing and supportive and evocative for me to um, continue to convey these teachings, which have come down for so many centuries. And um, sometimes we think, oh, it's some, you know, ancient mystical thing that's been presented a long time by monks and we're just, you know, barely studying it in our the spare time of our busy lives. Um, but I don't know. I, I think every single um, participation in it is part of a big, vast braid and river that's come down and each piece is just as valid as all the others. So what we've done here is uh, every much as every bit is part, as much part of this whole thing. So thank you for your participation. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Pratiba. All right. Well, we are at the end. So um, thanks so much for these six weeks. And um, um, I wish you very well in your in your practice. Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.